0: I have about uh, probably 15 or 20 minutes on the tap phone now. Okay. Yeah, we can we can just have a nice chat. And uh, I should say, I, we had to get uh, moved out of Summit Station yesterday, but we can chat about how and why that happened as well.
1: With support from the Climate Kick Alumni Association, welcome to the elephant. I'm Kevin Canners. With an endless expanse of glacial ice and snow, surrounded by a rugged and barren coastline, Greenland is a pretty strange place. The land is so sparsely populated that, despite its size, it's home to only 57,000 inhabitants, making it the country with the lowest population density anywhere in the world. But what Greenland lacks in people, it more than makes up for in ice. The gigantic ice sheet that covers over 80% of the island is in places upwards of three kilometers thick. It might not be surprising that we rarely think about what's going on in such an otherworldly place. Some of that feels so remote from our lives. But there's a strong case to be made that what's happening on Greenland should be on our minds. Because stored in that ice sheet is millions of cubic kilometers of frozen water, or 2.8 million cubic kilometers to be exact. Now, when we're dealing with things at that magnitude, it can be hard to wrap one's head around just what those numbers mean. But to help us conceive of how much ice that is, picture in your mind for a moment Central Park in New York City at 3.4 square kilometers, it's a really big park, one that takes up a sizable amount of the space on Manhattan. Now imagine that you built around Central Park, walls that towered into the sky one kilometer, or significantly taller than any building that's ever been constructed on the planet. Now if you took this gigantic rectangle and you filled it with water, water that you then somehow froze, you'd be left with a really gigantic ice cube. Well, times that impossibly big rectangle of ice by 830,000, and you just about have the amount of ice in the Greenland Ice Sheet. And that ice, that ice is melting, and it's sending an almost incomprehensible amount of water into our oceans, and that amount is increasing. While it's something that would take centuries to unfold if the entire Greenland Ice Sheet were to melt, it would lead to a global sea level rise of over 6 meters, which means we could say goodbye to large parts of Miami, Shanghai, New York, London, Mumbai, and dozens of other cities. Over the past few years, scientists have started becoming increasingly alarmed at the rate that the ice sheet is melting. And there are signs that the island's ice cover is changing in ways that is impacting its ability to absorb excess water, meaning that more meltwater may be running off from the ice sheet into the ocean than previously believed. So it's critical that scientists understand what's happening on the ice sheet, and how it's changing. And luckily for me, it turns out that an old friend of mine, someone I was on the rowing team with at university, is now a seasoned glaciologist. Liam Colgan is an assistant professor at York University in Toronto. And his field of expertise specifically centers around studying how the Greenland ice sheet is changing because of climate change. So when I found out several weeks ago that he was soon setting off on an expedition to Greenland, I jumped at the chance to talk to him while he would be there on the ground, both to learn about the research he's doing there, but also to get a sense of what it's like to do climate science out in the field in such an extreme environment. Hey Liam, how's it going?
0: Not so bad, not so bad. It's uh, uh,
1: it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while, but uh,
0: it'll be nice to have a good chat.
1: And Liam is in Greenland for a pretty long time.
0: We're in Greenland for about six weeks total, about four of which are spent on the ice sheet. And it's part of a NASA program called Fern Cover. And Fern is the porous near surface layer of the ice sheet.
1: So Liam and the team are there studying something called Fern. I know not Fern as in the plant, this is spelled F I R N. And to explain what Fern is, it's important to remember that glaciers are essentially massive flowing bodies of ice. And this is ice that was created over years by snow becoming buried under more and more layers of snow above. Eventually, the pressure on the deeper levels of snow gets to the point that the snow's crystals start to reform into ice. And between freshly fallen snow and the solid glacial ice lies the transition zone of fern.
0: As snow piles up and slowly gets compressed into ice, it's sort of the transition zone between snow and ice. And it's about 60 meters thick and it covers the whole ice sheet. So, NASA's fern cover is a specific program to survey the fern of the ice sheet and understand how it's responding to climate change.
1: And so, we'll get to why fern is important a bit later on. But first, I want to find out what it's like to be there in Greenland. And I got a bit of a sense of how harsh the conditions can be from the fact that Liam wasn't where he expected to be when we take this interview. So, where are you right now, exactly?
0: So right now, I'm at a uh, small town in southwestern Greenland called Kangerlussuaq, which has one of the larger research stations in Greenland.
1: So, but when we planned this interview, you were going to be at Summit Station, which is in the middle of the ice sheet. So what happened? Why did you end up moving?
0: To survey all the fern cover sites around the ice sheet, we have to move around a lot because uh, the fern is different everywhere on the ice sheet. It's changing uh, and responding to climate differently everywhere on the ice sheet. So uh, we have been using Summit Station as a base of operations for the last few days and it's located about 3,200 meters right at the top of the ice sheet in the interior and it's uh, nice and cold up there. But we found out that the storm was coming and our program managers didn't want to maroon at Summit Station for an extra two or three days. So instead they asked us to work through the night to get out in time for a storm coming in the next day. So actually uh, yesterday night, we received word at 10 p.m. that we'd be leaving at 8 a.m. So uh, we worked uh, right through till about 1 in the morning to wrap up our our science at Summit and uh, get out with a plane in time for the storm to come in.
1: And I was curious, given that the Greenland Ice Sheet is not a place that most of us will get to visit in our lifetimes, what is it like to actually be there? What is it like to be in the middle of the ice sheet? As Liam says, it can all kind of blend together.
0: Well, although we go to many sites on the ice sheet, they do all look very much the same. It's very flat on the ice sheet in the interior. The the, the slopes are imperceptible to the human eye. So it's a dead flat horizon, 360 degrees. Uh, Usually the ice sheet is bright white and the sky is bright blue. And that's about all you see. Sometimes when we're working by skidoos and tents, we'll have our cluster of tents and skidoos and that'll be the only blotch of color on the landscape. But otherwise, it's totally wide open and it's a bumpy snow surface that's windblown and very hard pressed. You can walk right on top of the snow. It's, uh, super windblown, super dense snow. Very cold. But everywhere is just big and new and wide open white and blue skies.
1: And I asked Liam if it felt surreal the first time he had the chance to go to the ice sheet.
0: The first time you go to the ice sheet, it does seem very surreal. Especially when you start to show up at some of the larger ice sheet facilities. Where the Americans operate uh, a skiway at a former dewline site, which has a, a large metal building that protrudes above the snow surface. So when you go to Summit, and they have their permit buildings on Legs above the snow, surface of so the snow can blow through underneath. All of these infrastructure sites look very surreal. Sort of like the planet Hoff in Star Wars. Especially when it gets windy and blowy and the, the clouds just close in and it becomes all white with blowing snow. We have these strange buildings dotting the landscape. It can be quite surreal.
1: But back to the scientific research. Liam and his team were there studying FERN, that transition zone between snow and ice. But why does FERN matter? Well, there's two main reasons, and both are due to the fact that the nature of FERN is changing because of climate change. The first involves altimeter satellites, which NASA uses in order to measure changes in the size and volume of the ice sheet. These satellites beam down to Earth laser signals, and they measure the time it takes for the signal to hit the surface and bounce back. By using this time measurement, they can figure out the altitude of the Earth's surface, and thus how deep the ice sheet is in a particular spot.
0: We use those sorts of satellites to look for volume changes in the greenland ice sheet.
1: But the point at which the satellite signal bounces back depends partly on the density of the fern. And somewhat counterintuitively, the warmer temperatures are causing the snow to transform into ice faster. In other words, it's making the fern denser.
0: So these sorts of processes, the warmer air temperatures and the warm out water, they weren't happening a couple of decades ago, but now they are. And so those processes are making the fern get denser faster than they were a couple decades ago. And if you don't account for that effect, to a satellite it'll look like the ice sheet's getting smaller, when in fact there's no mass change, it's just the near surface of the ice sheet getting denser.
1: So the firm matters because they need to take it into account to make sure that NASA's satellite measurements about the ice sheet are correct. But maybe the more compelling reason that this transition zone between snow and ice is so critical involves meltwater. Every summer in Greenland, there is a melt season. For a couple of months across much of the ice sheet, the top surface layers of snow and ice begin to melt. And because climate change has been increasing the temperatures, the amount of meltwater that's been created in recent years has been steadily on the rise. But not all of this meltwater makes it to the ocean. In fact, a large percentage of it simply gets reabsorbed into the fern and goes back into the ice sheet. And this is what Liam and the rest of the team are studying.
0: I mean, a lot of the interest in Greenland's meltwater right now is how the warmer climate is creating more meltwater and contributing to sea level rise. But what we're interested in is the fraction of extra meltwater that's being created now that's actually being retained within the ice sheet. So it melts at the surface, and then it percolates into the fern where it refreezes. So we know the meltwater is being created, and we have a pretty good idea of where it's refreezing inside the ice sheet. And so that's what we want to understand even better.
1: As we were saying before, as a result of climate change, the fern is becoming denser. It's turning into ice quicker. And a lot of this is because of previous occasions where the extra meltwater has been absorbed by the fern, and then when temperatures have dropped, it's refrozen. And it's a bit of a feedback loop, because as the fern becomes denser, it means that less meltwater can be absorbed by it next time. To understand this, picture in your mind for a second that you have a hockey rink full of ice. I'm Canadian, so this isn't hard for me. But if you've ever flooded a pond in winter, you'll know that if you use a hose to pour water on the ice, almost all of the liquid will stay above the surface. If, on the other hand, you had a hockey rink full of relatively uncompacted snow, the water would almost entirely get absorbed. Almost none of it would remain above the surface. And according to Liam, they can actually see these changes in the furnace density up close, even without the data tables and graphs.
0: I think this is now my seventh or eighth time in Greenland. And in terms of noticing climate change, when you're on the ice sheet, the actual surface of the ice sheet can look very similar every year uh, where we go. But when you actually drill beneath the ice sheet's surface, and you get beneath that layer of bright white snow, we do begin to notice uh, more melt layers forming in the ice sheet. So that means as this meltwater is created at the surface and percolates into the ice sheet, it refreezes, and we have documented that this refrozen melt meltwater is getting thicker through time to the point that it's actually preventing further meltwater from percolating into the ice sheet and causing it to run off the ice sheet surface uh, in some regions towards the ocean. And so that's a very striking visual because instead of the, the water percolating vertically into the ice sheet, now there's some regions that surface rivers form across the ice sheet surface and uh, you can you can notice that as you fly over it. You see these surface rivers that form in the melt season that didn't used to form.
1: And that's like those beautiful blue color that we see in, in images?
0: Yeah, that's correct. So you have the bright white snowpack, and then you have these uh, aquamarine threads of water flowing across the ice sheet surface, because they're flowing across these refrozen bands of ice just below the surface that's preventing the water from percolating in vertically.
1: And I've seen images of these meltwater rivers snaking across the Greenland surface. You can find them online, and I recommend you check them out, because they're absolutely beautiful. The contrast between the bright aqua blue water and the white snowpack makes for stunning imagery. But the beauty of these meltwater rivers hides the fact that they are, in most places, a new phenomenon. They didn't used to happen. And they're actually quite a scary omen for coming decades. In the official IPCC estimates of how much sea levels are going to rise because of the additional melting of the Greenland ice sheet, they assume that the fern would slowly absorb a large proportion of the meltwater over the course of the century. But now it looks like those estimates are overly optimistic, with potentially serious consequences for all of us. But while these new meltwater rivers are striking, Liam says that in his years of going back to the Greenland Ice Sheet, some of the most obvious changes he's seen are actually at the periphery of the ice sheet.
0: Some of the most striking changes of the ice sheet are actually probably observed at the margin of the ice sheet, close to where we're staying right now, in Kangaroo Swak. And uh, you notice things like uh, the river is flowing higher that uh, drains this local ice sheet catchment. So in the last few years, this river has noticeably flowed at much higher levels of discharge than it has in the past to the point that in 2012, it washed out a, a bridge here close to the research station that had been standing since uh, about 1950. And so those changes are quite striking and uh, require adaptation uh, by the people who live in Greenland here.
1: So throughout this six-week expedition... Liam and the rest of the team zigzagged across huge parts of the ice sheet. They installed stations, drilled ice cores, and took measurements, all to see how the furnace changing. And these locations that they were working in can be very far apart. Sometimes they got to their new sites by plane, sometimes by skidoo. And if you're wondering what a typical workday is like for them, it's, well...
0: Variable. (laughs) Uh, It's quite weather dependent. On the good days, we get up early. We usually meet as a team for breakfast at 7 in the morning so that we can be, uh, underway with some sort of activities by 8. Uh, sometimes the activity is, uh, simply taking down camp, packing it into the skidoos and sleds, and, uh, skidooing 100 kilometers across the ice sheet and setting up camp again. And that would be a full day activity where we'd get in just before dinner, have a 7 o'clock dinner, uh, before going to bed in the evening. On a science day at 8 a.m., we will probably start drilling a borehole to 16 meters depth or so, and that might take us two to three hours. We can only take out little pieces of the ice sheet at a time, and we constantly have to add more extensions. Again, it's a very laborious process. Uh, Or we might be doing instrumentation where we're wiring up the automated stations that run on solar power to then record observations throughout the year. And then those days, they can go, uh, hopefully until dinner time, but, for example, yesterday... Uh, when the storm was coming in and we found out we had a, only a brief weather window, we pretty much just grab a quick bite to eat and then work, uh, as long as we can. It's 24 hours daylight up here right now. So you can work outside till, you know, midnight or 1 a.m. and then get up at 7 a.m. the next morning and do it again. But it does get very cold on the ice sheet at night. You really notice when the sun is out during the day, we can be working in conditions as warm as, uh, minus 5 degrees Celsius. When the sun dips very low in the horizon uh, at night, the temperatures that we we're working at in summit are getting down to minus 32 degrees Celsius.
1: And if there's a storm while they're out on the ice sheet, well, they're basically just stuck there. There's not much they can do besides simply wait it out.
0: We got pretty lucky with weather this year. We didn't get pinned down by too many storms, but there was uh, a good two-day period when we were operating by skidoos in southern Greenland. So we had a big military C-130 plane uh, land on skis and drop a tail. And then we could take our skidoos and things out. And the plane left and we skidoed around on a big perimeter ring around southern Greenland. And when we were doing that activity and we were just alone with our skidoos and tents, so we did get shut in by a storm for two days. Where basically we just set up our tents and we're restricted to staying within line of sight of our tent, which can sometimes be as little as 10 to 20 meters, depending how much blowing snow there is. So we even have to put little bamboo markers to stake out uh, walking paths from, uh, say, the kitchen tent to your personal tent or the kitchen tent to the latrine tent. And uh, after the snow blows through, and the storm blows through, we spend about half a day digging out our skidoos which were covered in uh, snow with their tents, and uh, it was great
1: fun. Lots of work. And think for a moment how incredibly remote these places that they're working in are. When they're in the middle of the ice sheet, they are literally hundreds of kilometers from any aspect of civilization. So if anything were to go majorly wrong, it's not hard to imagine how things could become very bad very quickly. And then there are just the small things that one misses from ordinary life, those comforts that we tend to take for granted.
0: It can be quite difficult to spend three or more weeks at a time out on skidoos and living in tents. Satellite phone uh, is great for communications to get in touch with family members again uh, back home. But you do feel a little removed from reality when uh, you don't really get the news headlines every day. Just what your family members might tell you on the occasional call in, and just the the general hardship of living in a tent and uh, always having to wear heavy clothes for three weeks at a time. It feels quite decadent to simply get back to a research station where you can walk around in bare feet on a carpet. You know, those kind sort of little pleasures in life that you uh, forget about. In terms of physical hardships, naturally there's a few cold injuries, frostbite, and et cetera, that pop up every now and again. And there's also some uh, unusual injuries which you might not expect uh, to encounter in the field, for example, this this spring I got a little bit of sinus barotrauma, which is a which is a rather weird condition uh, that results from uh, repeated unpressurized plane flights where your your ears basically have trouble dealing with the pressure and uh, they start to pop all the time even when you're not on the plane and it takes a while to recover. So uh, you know the, the military planes have somewhat, I would say. <laughs> substandard pressurization compared to a commercial plane where the pressure uh in the military planes gets pumped up and then reduces pumped up and reduces almost in a noticeable fashion during the flight uh and then when we're in the small planes the twin otters are not even pressurized at all and we're flying up to a summit station which is at 3200 meters elevation and obviously the plane is flying even higher than that so we, we do have some physical injuries that result from our field work but uh for the most part we're very well taken care of and we have uh medical helpline to call whenever we have some issues with hardships.
1: So you're back at the station in Kangaroo Slack. Did you get everything done? Did you do everything you needed to do?
0: Yes, we've got everything done. Uh, At this point, we've surveyed all of the, I should say, we've resurveyed all of the fern cover sites on the ice sheet. Uh, When we go to a site, we, we drill a hole through the fern and we put in an instrument that can measure the actual rate of compaction, so that's how fast the hole is fitting in response to the further densification, and it does that automatically over the course of a year and records the data, and then we go back each year and put in a new hole that measures uh, the densification process that we're interested in again.
1: So you've spent close to six weeks on the Greenland Ice Sheet now. It's coming to an end, but you've you've got the data, you've installed the instruments, so what happens next?
0: Well... Now that we've serviced our stations, download our data, uh, we go away, we retool for a year. We see what went well in terms of the field work, what could be improved upon, what resources we're going to need to act for in advance for next year. Anytime you have a, a military aircraft charter involved, you have to start planning these things months in advance. But in terms of the data, we're going to go away with the data. We're going to use those data points that we collected, understanding how the FERN is responding to climate change in specific areas of the ice sheet to understand that process better using models, computer models. And then we can apply and improve those models across the whole ice sheet where we don't have observations. And so that's a real collaborative process where uh, people like myself who go to the ice sheet to collect the data will then reach out and work with people who specialize in writing these computer codes and understanding the satellite observations. And so that's what we'll be spending the next few months doing until we started getting ready for uh, the 2017 field season.
1: And, and what about you? Uh, is there anything in particular that you're, you're looking forward to that uh, will come with finally getting back into civilization?
0: Mm, well, I suppose uh, there, there's two things that you, you really do miss when you're living in a tent, or at least I do, and uh, those were uh, Wi-Fi internet to keep in touch with the world, and, uh, and I suppose a Diet Coke, which is a, a beverage of choice. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have pretty good dining habits on the ice sheets. We have lots of food and drink at our disposal, but uh, not so many carbonated beverages.
1: <laughs> well, Liam, it was a pleasure to get to talk to you after such a long time. Thanks so much for calling in and, and telling us about the work that you and the rest of the team were doing in Greenland. And maybe we can check in a bit later on once we know more about what you found in the research.
0: Well, thank you very much, Kevin, for having me on the Elephant, and I will keep you posted with our future endeavors. Sounds good.
1: Have a great trip back.
0: Thanks a bunch, Kevin. Okay. Okay. Bye.
1: That was my interview with Liam Colgan, an assistant professor at York University in Toronto, Canada, and part of the NASA Fern Cover team, which just finished a 36-day expedition the Greenland Ice Sheet. And that's it for The Elephant this time. The Elephant is made with support from the Climate Kick, that's KIC, Alumni Association. It's a community of entrepreneurs and young professionals working on creating a climate resilient society. You can find out more at ckaa.eu. Our website is elephantpodcast.org where we have all of our previous episodes. And to keep up to date, you can like our page on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at elephantpodcast. And feel free to drop me a message over email. You can reach me at kevin at elephantpodcast.org. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.